Our scripture passage for today, as we continue to examine the Gospel of John together, is found in John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. If you have a Bible, please turn as I read aloud from the Word of God. John 19, 38 through the end of the chapter. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Christ, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let us pray. Dear Father, we give you praise and glory for your word. We give you praise and glory for your word, which is sharper than a double-edged sword to divide joints and marrow, to reveal the state of our hearts and our souls. We pray that your word might do this as we examine this work of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, that you might have your way with our lives and with our hearts, even as you did with them, that we might submit our ways to you. I pray that my words, as I preach this morning, would be faithful and in keeping with your word, which alone is holy and just and true, having the power through the work of your Holy Spirit to transform human lives so that they become in accordance with your plan for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to read to you a letter that I received uh, sort of in an unusual way. Uh, several months ago, my brother David gave me his his old uh, Apple computer. And so on this computer, there was apparently a friend of his who had written a letter. And I'd like to read it to you. <clears throat> to whom it may concern, <clears throat> my name is John Doe. Which, of course, means his name wasn't John Doe, but... For all intents and purposes, my name is John Doe, he wrote. I worked for your company as an automotive technician in years past. I'm writing this letter to inform you, my former employer, that I have accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I have asked and received forgiveness from God for all my wrongdoings that I have committed in the past. I also need to inform you, as a previous employer, there were things that I did that were wrong while I was an employee of your service center. Now, so far, a wonderful letter, right? But it goes beyond there. At this time, I am returning shop-supplied equipment that I personally knew and still know that it does not belong to me. Again, God has forgiven me for this, but has told me through prayer that I need to return these things that do not belong to me. When we become obedient to God's commands, we have to do things that are very hard to do. 
We also have to honor God's commands as to further our growth with him. Please accept my complete apology as an ex-employee. I continue to pray daily that God will heal me and lead me in the direction that is pleasing to him. Thank you, John Doe, October 17, 1998. How do you think the service center where this man worked responded when they got this letter? I have no idea. Do you think they were astonished when they received this letter? Perhaps when they started to read it, they picked out in the way we might tend to do, nitpicky sort of way. I have asked and received forgiveness from God for all my wrongdoings that I have committed in the past. And before reading any further thought to themselves, well, if they wronged us, then they haven't been forgiven by us. But then they read further. And he's admitting that he did wrong while he served as their employer. And then he went further. And before they got there, they might have thought to themselves, well, now he, uh, now he said it. He did wrong. Hmm. So now what's he going to do about it? And he goes further and he says, I'm doing something about it. I'm returning all the things that were yours that I had. And then they said, well, <clears throat> this is really something. <clears throat> but why would a man write such a letter? Why would he do such a thing? He was free and clear, right? From a human perspective, he stole these things from the place he worked. Use the word for it. He was no longer working there. They were unaware that he had these things. Otherwise, doubtless, he would have been probably been being under prosecution from the law. And yet, all of a sudden, when he's free and clear... This letter, please forgive me, I have wronged you. I have become a Christian, I now know that what I did was wrong, and I am returning everything that I stole. (laughs) There's not many letters like these that go around, are there? How many of you have ever seen a letter like this, or received a letter like this? It's a rarity, isn't it? And so in the context of this passage, I read this letter. Because we have before us a very similar, even a more amazing circumstance and situation in the lives of Joseph of the town of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Let us look first at this situation. Because the questions that we ask in this situation... With regard to Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, it states explicitly in our passage that they were secret followers of Christ. Christ had just been killed. In essence, their secrecy as followers of Christ was secure. Why reveal it at this point? So we must look at Joseph and Nicodemus' position in order to understand what their situation was. And as I prepare to point out the specifics of their situation, let me also first point out that they are parallel passages. Parallel passages means that as there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
that there are stories that are told, some stories that are told and mentioned in all of them. And this story of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus taking the body of Jesus from the cross and, and burying his body <clears throat> is told in all of the Gospels. <clears throat> and so the parallel passages are Matthew 27, verses 57 and following, Mark 15, verses 42 and following, and Luke 23, verses 51 and following. At certain points, I'm going to read specifically from these verses, and I'll give the reference then. But just to let you know that there are certain things that are told about these men in each one of these passages, and not all the same things are told in each of the passages. So we, in essence, have a collage that is put together, the various parts put together from the Gospels that tell us about these men and their positions. The thing that they all state makes it clear to us that Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, were rich and influential men. They were not obscure nobodies. They were not men who were in the backwaters, whose names would be unknown as household words in Jerusalem. But instead, they were names that were prominent. Names that would have been widely known. Known not only among the inner circle, but also known among the people as a whole. They were rich and influential. Now, men often get rich and influential by taking risks. But, as we're all aware, once they have achieved the success you will often find them to be much like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Having succeeded, they become very conservative and very cautious. They do not want to take risks that would jeopardize their positions, their wealth, their influence, their friendships. Having arrived, they want to conserve their position because they are in a place of envy for all of the people. And they do not want to botch it. They do not want to ruin it. do not want to lose that position. Our passage in John and the parallel passages all show these things about these two men. As a matter of fact, though, if you look, if you do a search for the name and the person of Joseph of Arimathea, Although his name appears in all four of the Gospels regarding this account of the burial of Christ, this is the only time in Scripture that his name appears in reference to the burial of Christ, as far as we know. Of course, he may appear elsewhere with a name change, but it seems unlikely, since under the divine guidance of the Lord, the authors of Scripture would be more than likely to point to him again if he were to crop up again because of this gracious ministry that he performed to Christ. We are introduced to Nicodemus, however, elsewhere in Scripture. At the beginning of the book of John, of which more later. He appears again at this point, after Christ has died on the cross. He actually makes two appearances in the book of John. John chapter 3 and John chapter 7. From the statements made about these men at this point and the goal they set out to achieve concerning the body of Christ, the official approval that they gained in the process, 
all reveal the broad nature and influence of these men, and reveal as well their wealth and power. So if you consider that situation, Pilate, Caesar's appointed governor of this whole area, how many men would have the influence to gain an audience and to make this request? Not the obscure men, but instead only people of influence and power, such as Nicodemus or the one who did it, Joseph of Arimathea. We are told of the position of Joseph in Matthew 27, verse 57. When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea. And we know the way to save wealth, status, and friends is by avoiding controversial positions and alliances with controversial people. These men were rich. They were influential. And their influence came as a result of their membership in the group that was called the council. The council means simply the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> the influence of these men came from their position among the elite religious leaders of the time. They belonged to this council, which had its origins back in the days of Moses. You remember Moses' father-in-law who came to him and said, Appoint men to help you in this task of judging the people so that you are not worn out and the people are not worn out. And so Moses did as Jethro recommended. And there were 70 elders of the people of Israel who were appointed at that time as leaders to help judge, make decisions, judge the people, judge uh, court cases that came before them. The idea had been revived probably during the days of the Maccabees just prior to the Roman conquest of Israel. It was this group of 70, actually 71, who decided Jewish policy. This group who served as prosecutors, judges, and jury in religious matters and other issues that related to the governance of the people. Except that, as we have seen in the recent weeks as I have preached on these passages in looking at the trial of Christ, <clears throat> their power was significantly curtailed. It was ex- extremely limited at this point in time <clears throat> because they were under an occupation government and an occupation army. In other words... The Jewish people did not <clears throat> rule themselves, the Romans ruled them, and Pilate was the Roman governor. And so the Sanhedrin could not simply say, this man is guilty of blasphemy, we are going to execute him for this crime. They had to have the Roman governor sentence Christ for whatever crime he chose to sentence him for, because they did not have it within their power. They could counsel and recommend, but only Caesar's representative could try and punish the people. So Nicodemus is said to be a Pharisee, not just a member of the council of the Sanhedrin, but also a Pharisee. One of those who loved the word of God. It's easy for us to forget as we read all of the terrible things about the Pharisees. And and, and Pharisaism is something that is a bad word to us. And yet the Pharisees, you think of the Sadducees, and the the title Sadducee rarely comes up. These are the two, two of the classes among the religious leaders. But the Pharisees were the people who took God's word seriously. Now, the problem was that they, well, there's no such thing as taking it too seriously, but they took it seriously and they, however, used it as a springboard. 
In order to explain God's word, they came up with all kinds of man-made restrictions, and that's where they got into trouble, because they made it a dry, cold, legalistic sort of thing in which there was no life and no expression of the love and the grace of God. <coughs> Nicodemus was a Pharisee. <coughs> Both men were members of the council, which had in the past day, the day, well, actually earlier that morning, exhibited such power in gaining the crucifixion of Christ despite the opposition of Pilate. <coughs> now, it was this very council, the Sanhedrin, if you think back through the history of the Gospels up to this point, it was this very council that had warned, saying, any who were followers of Christ would be cast out of the synagogue. In other words, they would not be regarded as Jewish religious people. They would be refused any part with the Jewish practice of their religion, whether in the temple or in the synagogues. And so it was a group of men who were extremely opposed to Christ, as we've seen by their attaining the crucifixion of Christ. But they had explicitly stated, any who are followers of this man are going to be regarded as the word anathema, which means we're not going to have anything to do with them. They're outside of the pale, to use another phrase. <clears throat> outside of the pale means we don't even recognize them. To us, they don't exist. And this was the group to which Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus belonged. <clears throat> so the position of these men needed to uphold the position of their influential governing body. And yet, despite these very powerful reasons for them to be absolutely opposed to Christ, both of them were secret followers of Christ. <clears throat> secret followers of Christ. An interesting statement. It's interesting particularly in the context of this passage, I think, because we see here in this passage the point in time where they became non-secret followers of Christ, public followers of Christ. We're introduced to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 16 is perhaps the most widely quoted and widely known uh, statement of Christ. It was spoken to Nicodemus. <clears throat> he was the one who was the recipient of this word regarding salvation. <clears throat> Let me read from John chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Again, ruling council, Sanhedrin. Same thing. Ruling council, Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? 
That was the beginning of Jesus' discussion with this Nicodemus who came with Joseph to bury the body of Christ. He came to Jesus at night. And so through the course of that conversation, Jesus taught him and exposed his assumptions and spoke to him the words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In our passage now, it tells us this, that there had been great progress in the life of this Nicodemus. As yet a secret follower of Christ, Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. So we see that Joseph, along with Nicodemus, were followers of Christ, but they were so in secret, not openly, because they feared the Jews. What difference did the position of the Jews make to their discipleship of Christ Belonging to the Sanhedrin as they did, both men knew that their lives could be ruined utterly, completely, and finally if it were to become a public matter that they were followers of this Jesus, whom religious leaders had gone so far as to have crucified. You remember the point at which the religious council... The ruling council of the Sanhedrin determined that anybody who was a follower of Christ would be cast out from their community. The religious community was the point in time when Jesus healed the man who had been born blind. And uh, that man, in his responses to them, revealed to them their own hypocrisy, that they could be so forbidding and so angry and so bitter against this gift of sight that the Lord had granted to him. And so Joseph and Nicodemus knew all about the bitterness and the vindictiveness and the hatred that was a reality in the lives of those who were a part of the Sanhedrin. Now, whatever the status of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus throughout the deliberations concerning the crucifixion of Christ by the Sanhedrin, we know that they failed to prevent the crucifixion of Christ. It is specifically pointed out that Joseph was opposed to the decision that was made. In Luke 23, 50 and 51, we read, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. But this doesn't tell us in any way what form his opposition took. And the sense there is ambiguous. Does it mean that he said, I am opposed to it? Or does it mean that he abstained from the vote? Does it mean that he absented himself from this? He said, I know what's going to happen. And he said, there's nothing I can do about it. The votes are not there. I'm not going to be there. We have no idea what happened. All we know is that he was not in agreement with this. But we don't know if the rest of the Sanhedrin had any idea what this man felt about the issue. And as we consider people in situations like that, 
We oftentimes have a tendency to be, to be bitter, particularly if we are on the side we feel is the just and the righteous side. If we, for instance, at this point in time in our lives were followers of Christ, it would be easy for us to look back and say, why didn't they stand up and say, it must not be. Courage would demand that, right? <clears throat> and yet we, by God's grace, have the opportunity not to see them at the point that they were disagreeing, but instead to see them at this point where they were doing something that was even more courageous, perhaps, than to have stood at that point and disagreed with the decision. <clears throat> they failed to prevent the crucifixion of Christ. Of course, since it was the will of God, it would have been impossible to stop. But let us point out what it says in John chapter 7, beginning with verse 46. <clears throat> when the temple guards were sent to get Jesus, they came back to their religious leaders and they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards declared, you mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted, has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? Rhetorical question, right? We know the answer is what? Yes. We know the answer is yes. Okay. <clears throat> so they say, has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? And this indicates under what pressure Joseph and Nicodemus were <laughs> at this point. The council. Has, any, uh, has any of those fellows believed in him? <laughs> yes. No. So their response is, has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, uh, uh, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. <laughs> so, the timid foot in the water by Nicodemus. He says, well, let's try this. Point of order, point of order. <laughs> uh, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Are you from Galilee too? And you might imagine Nicodemus at this point saying, oh, yes, you're right, you're right. I, I, I. <laughs> That might be completely unfair to Nicodemus. But I think we see in our passage here that regardless of what we might think that was unfair to him at that point, here was a man who came forward. <clears throat> at the point in time when the necessity of coming forward was the least. It's like the, the letter that I read about the man who wrote back to the service center, which he had served some time before. And said, oh, by the way, you didn't know this, but I'm, to, I'm writing to tell you this. I was dishonest. <laughs> He'd gotten away with it. Nicodemus and, and Joseph had gotten away with it, right? He was dead. This Jesus was dead now. What's the use of following him? What's the use of any show of allegiance or display of emotion or concern for him? No point at this point, right? He's dead. So, uh, our secret goes with him to the grave. There's no need for the Sanhedrin to know that truly we have been his followers. And so they didn't needn't take any action against us. They'll never know it. It's fine. 
It's a closed book now. The secret is safe. We remain hidden. Our lives, our positions protected. And yet, here they come. Joseph. You just have to picture it. He comes trampling in to Pilate's place and says, I'd like an audience with Pilate. Pilate. Oh, I'll send him in. Joseph, oh, Joseph, we'll send him in. Please, right in. Pilate says, I would like to take the body of this Jesus down and to bury him. Oh, by all means, by all means. Now, this was not something that was done secretly. You can't take a body off a cross. And the whole community has been there to witness this. And when Jesus had the popularity and the visibility that he had, and all of the religious leaders were there to mock him as he died. And he died quickly, so everybody didn't have a time to say, oh, let's go fast now. And, and not only that, with all the signs that followed the death of Christ, which are revealed in the other Gospels, the darkness and the, all of the visible manifestations, this was a riveting event. Joseph and Nicodemus, they are out from under the shadow of secrecy. They have stepped out from under that shadow in order... One does not know if it was in order to make a public statement of their support for Christ. To make a public statement that they, among the great number of the Sanhedrin, they at least declared that this was an unjust and wicked and violent thing that their number had done. But I believe what it was was their expression of devotion to Christ. Expression of devotion that they owed themselves to him. They probably had no hope for any future whatsoever. Because even his disciples had no concept whatsoever of the resurrection. And yet Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus stepped forward. One of the fascinating things about this account is the way in which, which it again is the fulfillment of God's prophecy in the Old Testament. Several weeks ago, I read from Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, it speaks of... um, It speaks thus. Isaiah 53, verse 9. He was was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so this powerful and glorious step taken by Nicodemus and Joseph was the fulfillment of the prophecy of God concerning the person of Christ. Though he died with the wicked, he would not be thrown into the common grave of the common criminal. But instead, Joseph of Arimathea, a secret follower whose secrecy would best have remained, came forward and said, going through the whole process necessary to contact Pilate, stepping in front of the whole watching world to take down the body of Christ, I am a follower of his. Not caring what the results would be or what the cost would be. And Jesus had burial in a wealthy man's tomb, the tomb of none other than Joseph of Marimathea. It doesn't state that in our Gospel of John, but it states that in one of the other Gospels. So we know that it was Joseph's own tomb that had never been used, in which Jesus was buried. What significance is there in this for us? I think there is varied significance. 
significance that there always is in God's word because his word is living and active. It is never designed to come forth as a history lesson which strikes us between the eyes and says, oh, that's interesting. I'll keep that in mind, but instead is designed for a lesson to transform our lives. And so I would encourage you to see these things from the lives of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. I would encourage you to see, first off, may seem like a minor point, but one that we nevertheless must understand and accept. How many times have you and I been in a situation where perhaps we have seen injustice and we knew that there was a person there who agreed with us and we saw that they refused to stand? And our hearts turned to lead within us. And we said to ourselves, I thought that at the very least I could count on him or her. (laughs) Guess who those two men were? Nicodemus and Joseph. At one point in their lives, that's who they were. And so it's, it's a blessing for us to see that God does not take people at a static point in time and say, you're going to remain like that, buddy. That's the way you are. You're the man who doesn't vote when he should. You're the man who doesn't stand up when he should. You're the man who is a secret follower all along. But instead, God says, my timing, my way, my will, it will happen. And when God intends to break a man out of a pattern, he will do it. (laughs) Any one of us. There may have been times when we said, there for nothing. I'm not going to say I'm a follower of Christ for nothing. I wouldn't even whisper it. I don't want to be known as that sort of person. (laughs) Not in this place. Not among these people. No way. So not only is it an encouragement regarding ourselves that God can and will change us to be the people he wants us to be, to be bold and heroic as Nicodemus and Joseph, but also for us to have courage and faith in God's work in one another because it's easy for us to get embittered against one another. Think of the disciples. The whole situation's changed now. And they could look at Joseph and Nicodemus. Imagine some of them knew that Nicodemus had come to talk to Jesus at night. They see him and say, yeah, that fella, he's just a rascal. He knows that Jesus is right. He's even said, we know you come from God, and yet he won't say a word about it. He's a coward. Forget him. He won't ever amount to anything. And yet on this day, when the disciples were in hiding, who was it who was out in the open? (laughs) Ha, ha, yowzer. Think about that with regard to ourselves. The other things that I think we need to see are the process by which this came about in the lives of Nicodemus and Joseph. First step was witness. That was what they did. And Joseph went to Pilate and said, I want the body to bury him. That was what they did when they went out, whether they themselves went out or as more likely with servants of theirs to Golgotha and took the body down. Take it, took it away to wrap it. That is witness. That is public statement. And as Christ says in his word, those who honor me in front of men, those who acknowledge me, I will acknowledge before my Father and the angels in heaven. But those who refuse to, I will disown. Witness is a must 
for those who are followers of Christ. You cannot remain a secret follower all of your life. If you are a follower of Christ who desires to honor Christ and for him to honor you, it must happen that the witness will become public. The second part is distance. Witness is first, distance is second. They distance themselves from the position of the ungodly, from the wickedness that had gone on in this situation. They were compelled to say, as it says in our passage, uh, Joseph of Arimathea was not in agreement with the decision of the council. And because he was not in agreement, and because he was a follower of Christ, he was compelled to distance himself from it and say, I am not only going to have no part of that, here is what I am going to do to reveal I will not be involved in this wickedness. Distance from the people who are involved in the wickedness. Distance in, I think, the wickedness himself, not wickedness, but the sinfulness of being a secret follower who never professed or witnessed to Christ. So witness and distance. The third thing is giving. What sort of giving? Giving of his life and giving of his possessions. How did he give his li- how did they give their lives? They ministered to Christ. We're not going to minister to Christ except insofar as we minister to those who are <clears throat> his people, those around us who have needs. But also in their giving, they gave of their possessions. It was not a cheap thing for Joseph to give up his tomb. It was not a cheap thing for them to get 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. These were extremely expensive things. And so for those who are followers of Christ, not only will there be witness to following him and distance from evil, but there will be giving so that through every part of life and possessions, there is a testimony to the fact that he has changed the way in which I respond to the world around me. I now give myself to others. I now give my things to others. Let's join together in prayer. Dear Father, we pray that you would cause us to see these things in the lives of Joseph and Nicodemus. We thank you for the way in which they were such a blessing. As we read about in Scripture, and as we know through their ministry, to Christ as they buried, they prepared and buried his body. We give you thanks for using these men, for bringing them out into the open so that we might see their devotion. We pray that we might be people who are devoted, who are fearless, to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ in a godly manner, in our lives and in our witness, in our giving, that we might separate ourselves from evil so that we can declare with boldness that our lives are devoted to Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.